Hey, everybody. I'm Andrea Siminski, and this is the Hindsights 2020 podcast. On this episode, we're talking about a ton of really interesting things. Among them are pandemic parenting, ushering new life into the world, and having to say goodbye to loved ones. Hi, this is Laika Kayani. I'm the founder of Hybrid Health, a company that I launched uh, just last month, February 2021. I'm a mother of two kids, a five-year-old boy and a 10-month-old girl. We live here in the Bay Area with my husband. We've been here about 10 years and excited to be on the show. Thank you, Laika, for joining me. I do want to let our listeners know that this is the first time I'm trying to record this podcast in person because we are where we are with this pandemic. We are outside in Laika's backyard. We're physically separated so that we can not have masks on. But guess what, guys? Sounds are going to happen. Construction's happening in the city. So you might hear birds chirping or a hacksaw in the background. (laughs) Who knows? But we're just going to roll with it. <laughs> but like I so said, you mentioned your your mom to two kids, one of whom is a young one. And when we first started this pandemic, you were like kind of at the tail end of your pregnancy with your second child and delivered a baby during a pandemic. And I remember being at a park, you know, sitting six feet apart from you one day, we just needed a break as moms and we met up and it was unclear at the time whether or not you would be going to the hospital alone to give birth alone. And you're the first person I'm having on that's experienced pregnancy and and delivery during the pandemic. So I would love to hear your story on that. Absolutely. So when San Francisco went into shelter in place, March 12th, I think around that time, I was seven months pregnant and I was exhausted had a five-year-old at home and I was working at a health tech startup as a head of platform products. And when we got into shelter in place, I thought that this was just something temporary. It was going to last just a few weeks and it was just a matter of time before all, these, all of this would blow over. Well, a couple weeks in, between my husband and I, we were managing Zoom for uh, our son's preschool and we were going back and forth. I just remember very vividly just how passive aggressive we both were and who was going to manage who during the Zoom call. Um, I'm very intentional in terms of how I block off my time. So I made it a point to block my time on my calendar where my husband did not have that same luxury. His his work was just incredibly busy. So a lot of that I think fell on me to to manage. And not to mention I was again pregnant, very, very swollen. I I swell up a lot in my pregnancy, my ankles um, are very lovingly called cankles. Uh, and all I could do is lay in bed, have my feet propped up, but then have my son next to me on my Zoom calls, manage his Zoom calls. And I thought, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time. Well, it wasn't a matter of time. It was just going to be this very extended period where things would just drag on. And, and then I guess for me, the silver lining was, well, I was going to go on maternity leave in the middle of May. And so and if we did end up going back to work, my time at home or my time in the office uh, working was going to be uh, very limited because I was uh, just a, just about to go on maternity leave. And I would say that in a way was actually a 
great time to be pregnant. As as awful as it was to be pregnant and sheltered in place, it actually gave me a moment to spend time with my son who I probably hadn't given a lot of time to because of nausea and, and not feeling well during my pregnancy, but I got to spend a lot of quality time at home with him. And I had this like this light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, that I was going on maternity leave in the next couple of months. So even if we were sheltered in place, at least I wasn't working and having to... Trying to balance. Trying to balance all of these things. Fast forward two more months, I had Noor and... I love to tell people that there is no other time to have a baby than in the middle of the pandemic. I actually didn't feel like I needed to commit socially to people. I didn't feel like I needed to go out. And it was really, really nice that we were all home. Now, with that said, we were all home and my son also had his Zoom sessions uh, having, after I had Noor, I was, I just remember sitting in my bathroom and I was nursing your, actually a bathrobe that you had gifted me. Oh, good. <laughs> I was sitting in my bathrobe and nursing your, and Akbar walks in with his iPad. And <laughs> was it on the Zoom school? It's on the Zoom school. And he goes, Mama, can you please fix this for me? And <laughs> I don't know if kids on the Zoom show or, you know, who got a free show, got a free show, but it was really embarrassing. But all that to say, it was an interesting time. It, in, there were moments where I felt that I had all this great time at home with my kids and there was something beautiful about that. But then there was something very exhausting about being home with the kids constantly and not getting breaks. The other thing I would add to the whole being pregnant and during a pandemic is I couldn't get help. And so talking about, you know, to moments of deliver at the time of delivery, I think we were sitting at the park and I was telling you, I don't know if my husband could be in the hospital with me, in the hospital room with me. I don't know. That was one. The second was, I don't know who's going to take in my child during my, during the pandemic, if he was able to be in the hospital uh, room with me. Uh, and the third was, if he was able to be with me, then can we, you know, was he going to be able to go in and out and go get, you know, emergency things we needed? And luckily he was able to, he, he was able to be in the room with me and, and we were able to kind of, you know, he was able to deliver, uh, help deliver the baby. And then luckily we had some friends who were willing to take the risk on having my son staying with them for two nights. And, and so we felt really, really fortunate. But I had mentally prepared myself to deliver this baby all by myself. And I was ready for that. And it was a sad reality, but I had to mentally prep myself if that was the case. And luckily, I mean, there's so many things here that I want to dig into, like so many things. I mean, the fact that you kind of, you know, this is a period of strange isolation. It's forced upon everybody. I'm sure that you were going to have family planning to come to town, to help you, to meet the baby, to visit. All of that goes away. You're coming up with plan B and C and D. Thankfully, you know, your community stepped in to say, sure, bring Akbar over. It's fine. Go experience this delivery. So that's amazing. I mean, it's kind of like these silver linings and these beautiful things that happen out of just circumstances that are out of our control. And like you could choose to look at it like 
sad or this sucks, you know, my mom can't come or my sister, you know. So I just, I do think it's been an amazing year and like sort of speaks to our resilience and our way of reframing things because you just got to get it done. You know, the the baby's coming, whether you're alone or not. So I just think that it's really amazing. And, you know, you mentioned to me before something about, you know, you had to labor with a mask on. And I think about this because you're a second time mom. And so I almost think it might be harder for parents who have had babies before because you know what you're missing or you know what that experience was like outside of a pandemic. And so I would love to hear kind of that story of, you know, your child meets you and you meet your child for the first time. And Absolutely. That's a, that's a really great question. I, I remember walking into the hospital after my uh, water broke and I had to wear a mask during that process. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's totally fine. Uh, and then we showed up for the actual delivery itself. So I had to go in in the morning to make sure my water indeed broke. And at the same time, we did a COVID test uh, to make sure I wasn't uh, positive. In the evening, I went in and had the delivery. And by then, they had received my negative COVID test. And you would think after having a negative COVID test, you could take off your mask and it would be a little bit more relaxed. But it wasn't. And I remember trying to breathe through the labor and this mask just like, you know, pumping up. And then like, I would stuck the mask in my mouth and it was this constant back and forth of this mask and breathing that made me realize that this was the first time I had, you know, I'd be delivering a baby what with a mask on. And then when I saw Noor and Noor saw me, she saw a sea of people, including myself with masks on. And she didn't see our full faces until we left the hospital. Which was how many days later? Which was three days later. Wow. Even when you were like in your room? When we were in our room, we were asked to be, we were asked to wear our masks the entire time. Wow. I had no idea. And the whole time. And it was, I guess when you're in the moment, you're not thinking about it really hard, but as your show implies hindsight in hindsight, you know, it's really, it's such a bizarre experience to know that, you know, this poor little innocent child who has nothing, who has no idea what's happening, you know, comes into this world and only sees a bunch of eyes and she knows nothing other than a bunch of eyes. And so, you know, she didn't see our faces for a while and, and until we got home. The other thing is she actually didn't see her brother until we got home. I had imagined this beautiful pregnancy and like this delivery and the surprise of like Akbar seeing uh, Noor in the hospital and he would hold her and would cuddle in the hospital bed together and we would take this beautiful photo. And that also went out the door because he couldn't be in the hospital. There was only one guest allowed. So it was the mask wearing. It was the fact that he couldn't be there. I had also imagined these like beautiful photos to be taken. Sure, like a newborn photo shoot. A newborn photo shoot in the hospital. And that couldn't happen. I have an interesting story about this newborn photo shoot and why that's important. So the day I um, had my embryo transfer done, my spore 
I got a notice or call from someone at our gym saying that someone in our gym community had died. It was a mom who delivered her baby. And five days after the delivery, she suddenly passed away. And the pictures that were actually circulating for her and her family were these hospital photos. And all I could think to myself was like, this is really morbid, but all I could think to myself was if something happens to me, I want these beautiful photos of our family at the hospital together because in the event that I go quickly, that there is some sort of living proof that I was there when we were all together. And I don't know why I had these thoughts and maybe it was the hormones that were going through my body, but I was incredibly affected by this this woman passing away and she was incredibly strong and just really ambitious and very driven. And I really, really looked up to her and seeing that experience and her kids not having her and the only memories her kids have from her are those photos made me want to have this photographer in the hospital. And because of COVID, I couldn't. And it really made me sad because I had actually was looking forward to this uh, moment for a long time. I had, had my photographer picked out. We, were, we already had a plan together and all those plans went out the door. Right. The best laid plans in 2020. Yeah. Out the door. Out the door. Out the door. But yeah, I mean, I think, a theme that you're sort of touching on, which is like realizing our own mortality this year has never felt more real, I think, for for everybody in, in different ways. So thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. I, I do remember when that happened. I remember you said something. And I also remember thinking, gosh, she's so like early pregnant. Like, oh, what a sad thing to have to comprehend and go through and help, you know, that community. I'm just going to kind of jump around a little bit. I mean... There's just so much I could talk to you all day long. And you guys ultimately, so you have your daughter, your second child. We're in a pandemic, like slowly as we move on and we go months in, eventually, you know, we open up into some like pod living. And fortunately, you and I were kind of in the same pod because your eldest son and and my kids were in preschool together. So that felt like a little bit of normal life kind of coming back. Like I mean, I imagine we were some of the first people to like hold your daughter. I remember feeling really weird about that. Like, can I hold her baby? But just so strange to be living in these times. And I don't know how much you want to talk about pod life, but I think that the thing that sort of connects it for me is eventually you guys did make a decision around the holidays to fly overseas to visit your husband's family for lots of different reasons. So I would love to kind of hear that. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things I want to unpack there. I think the pod life one, I definitely want to uh, talk about. It's one that I hold very near and dear to my heart. It certainly was a game changer when it came to the pandemic, knowing who your pod, who's in your bubble, who is not in your bubble, really changed our trajectory when it came to this uh, pandemic. What I will say is, so I I loved how we were connected. We had a couple other families that we were super, super close to. And we hung out often and we kept it really tight. We were 
only hanging out with one another. And the nice thing was that we actually had very similar interests or complementary interests. And, and that was really great. Like the guys got to riff on golf and, you know, whatever else we were able to, you know, talk about road to recovery post two kids or, or going through fertility treatment or, or just, you know, having somebody hold my baby, like the way you held my baby while I just did nothing for 10 minutes and have this crying child. And the reason why that pod was so important was it was important to my mental health, just knowing that I could look forward to hanging out with you all. And even if that was just to sit on your patio and do nothing and eat junk food and drink way too much wine, it felt good. It felt really, really good. And and then you guys obviously showed up for us, you know, and, and getting us food and, and just when we were in the thick of uh, newborn life and just knowing that we could hang out with people and see people's faces and Noor wasn't sheltered behind, you know, sheltered by people through masks. It was great. All of this has made me realize how important community is and how much community matters when we're living in places where we don't see our families. We are not close to our families. My mom lives in Atlanta. My husband's family lives in Pakistan. And we are thousands of miles away from family. And our pod, our bubble, our community is family. And family, you know, our friends are family and, and that's what we needed. And that's what got us through the few months. And it was sad when you guys left and I literally was heartbroken. I, I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how I was going to move forward. And if you move forward, we certainly did. But <laughs> Fortunately, while we don't get the families together anymore, I'm so glad that we can keep up our girls' nights and... I do trust my kids a little bit more now. Like they're used to wearing the masks. So we can yeah. <laughs> we'll probably get those guys together. But yeah. Yeah. So, so the pod really, really made a big difference and got us through the toughest moments. And just when I felt like all I want to do is just like crawl up into a corner and like not have anybody like, you know, call me and reach out for me. You guys showed up and you're like, okay, let's like let the kids hang out we'll hold the baby. Why don't you just like relax? Why don't you just like lay here for a bit? And I remember like sprawling out on your sofa outside and I'm like, I'm just like hanging out here. And it was just nice to have that. Really, really was nice. Yeah. I mean, it was a relief for us as well. And like you said, mental health wise, you know, I think the folks we hung out with, a lot of us similarly don't have immediate family really around to help out and or we're really like locked down. So it just... It was like a life raft, honestly. And it came at just the right time. Like I think for me, pandemic fatigue had set in and I was over it. <laughs> so it was really nice. <laughs> totally. You asked me about, you know, fast forwarding to Pakistan and, and making that trip to Pakistan. That was... So a couple of things on that. One is that my mother-in-law was supposed to come visit us in early May, or she was going to fly in in April. And then once Noor was born, she was going to help out for a few months. Well, in April, my mother-in-law found out that her cancer had spread and she would no longer be able to come help us with our daughter. And, and 
obviously, rightly so. And that just added another layer of stress. And, and my mom couldn't visit either. So in December, or actually November, we got a call from my husband's sister saying that their, you know, my mother-in-law's chemo was going to be stopped because she was not responding well and she was just too weak to move forward. So we decided as a family, and as a family meaning our immediate family, uh, my husband's two sisters, and then some uncles from uh, different parts of the U.S., we're all going to get together and spend some quality time with her um, in her last few moments, with, uh, you know, here with us. And we also collectively decided we weren't going to quarantine when we get there. And, and that time was just limited. And in the event that something happened, then we're all together and, you know, I don't know, some bizarre herd immunity concept kind of kicked in. Well, we got on the flight in December and double masked and all, got to Pakistan and, you know, we're excited to see everybody really, you know, Pakistan, nobody was following any COVID safety protocols at all. I mean, masks were kind of a chin guard for everybody there. It was just a, it was a bit of an accessory. And when we got to Amir's parents' house, I mean, in Pakistan, homes are just like, ginormous and you could easily house 15, 20 people in a house. And, and so we had about, I think, 18 of us uh, living in, in the house together and we distanced ourselves, but we weren't masking in the house, especially after traveling from places like San Francisco and London and Connecticut and Hawaii and all sorts of places. We decided we weren't going to mask. And it wasn't a conscious decision to not mask. It was just everyone was being a little inconsistent about whether they were wearing masks in the house or not. And I remember just being very adamant with my mother-in-law that everyone needed to wear a mask. We should only wear masks around my mother-in-law. And, you know, that fell a bit on deaf ears. And I think part of it is that as a daughter-in-law, I would say, I don't have a lot of say in the family. You know, I'm, I'm just a daughter-in-law, right? And I didn't want to push my agenda too hard. There's more cultural kind of issues there. But so five days after we arrived, Omer started feeling very sick. He felt feverish, body aches, chills. And he was like, this just does not seem normal. And this feels different. I'm going to go get a COVID test on in the morning. And so he did. He got a COVID test on, I think it was like Saturday morning. And then by Saturday night, he had a positive COVID test. We went ahead and tried to quarantine him within the house, but in a separate part of the house. We then also got everybody else tested and come to find out there were three kids who tested positive out of the 18 in the house and or out of 18 people in the house. And so that like a little bit of panic kicked in and we were like, okay, now let's start masking up. Let's start following protocols. And I just remember everyone just sort of making their own notes, but we started masking up and it just felt like every week was someone, you know, testing positive. And, and so I started getting symptoms probably 10 days after Omer tested positive. And I went and got a COVID test on, I tested positive. And Omer was still in quarantine when I tested positive. So I was taking care of two kids 
while he was in quarantine. Oh, and by the way, we were jet lagged. And so, you know, not only do I have COVID, I'm exposing my children, one who can't wear a mask while my husband's quarantining. So it was just a big mess. In the meantime, Omer's mom got COVID as well. And so unclear like how it happened. I mean, in the sense that like who she got it from there, you know, at some point you can't contact trace in the house. So she tested positive. And that was our biggest fear was that if she tested positive, it doesn't matter for everybody else. Cause generally people are a little, you know, are healthier kids are healthy. Things would probably be fine, but for her to get COVID was a big deal. And it ended up being a big deal. She not only was battling stage four cancer, uh, and she was certainly, you know, having a lot of breathing issues into her turn end of life. COVID only accelerated her issues and she passed away three days after her positive test came out. And she passed away alone in the hospital. And it was devastating. I remember um, Omer's sister and I were sitting together and she got the news and she, all she could say was, my mom was scared. She would by herself. She would, she wouldn't want to die alone. She would want to be surrounded by her loved ones. She would want to be surrounded by her daughters and son and her family. She's scared. I don't want her to die by herself. And she died by herself. And then the funeral was also very sad. We had a bunch of us who had COVID, so nobody could come, you know, and, and I think Pakistan was being super strict about, you know, letting bodies leave the morgue without, you know, being sent to kind of a COVID place to, for burials, but we were able to manage to bring her to the house and have like a really small ceremony just with the family at home. And I, it, I just remember how sad that was. A year and a half before, Mary's dad had passed away, and in the same place, kind of same setting, we had a, probably two hundred people around, you know, there around the a house for the funeral and for condolences. And for Omer's mom, it was 15, 16 of us, right? Around just for the for the uh, funeral. And it was really sad. It just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it was a really crappy feeling to know that for somebody who it was so pious and so religious all her life, valued her friends and family and loved to be around people, incredibly social. And the way you go out is that. And your funeral is this small gathering. And, and, maybe, and, and maybe it's a cultural thing. I mean, you know, in, in our culture, in Pakistani culture, it's very common to have big funerals and, and a sign of somebody who's loved is someone, you know, the number of people who show up for your, for your funeral and for your burial. And it was sad for her to not get that. Not that she wasn't loved and not that people want to share their condolences, but the pandemic really changed the game. I suppose, you know, on the bright side, she got to meet Noor before she went to the hospital. And so that I'm sure was a big bright spot for her. Absolutely. I think one of her wishes was to see Noor uh, and hold her in her arms. And she just wanted to, for us to be together. I initially actually wasn't going to go to Pakistan. I had just had Noor and I wasn't sleeping. I was exhausted. I mentally was just 
burnt out. I was also trying to start this company or not start it, but I, I was definitely incubating the idea of this company while I was on maternity leave. And I was exhausted. And so when Omer decided he was going to go to Pakistan, I was very clear that I didn't want to go. I wasn't going to take Noor. I wasn't going to go and we would stay here. When Omer's mom diagnosis came back and that the cancer had spread and she chemo was no longer going to be an option for her, Omer's sister had to call me and convince me to come and tell me that I needed to be there and that Omer's mom's only wish was to see Noor and hold her and see the four of us together. And I just knew I couldn't miss on that opportunity. I had to you know, avail that. And, and so I'm glad I did. I'm really glad I did. But it was a tough decision. It really was. Um, I don't think any of us regret it. I don't think anyone, uh, one of us thinks that we shouldn't have gone. I just am, feels very joyous to know that Noor was held by her grandmother and, and she was loved. She was loved. And maybe you guys can have a redo of a service or something later when restrictions are lifted and it's a reason to go back, right? Yeah, maybe. I think I think maybe at the one year, it's culturally, it's in Islam, you basically bury the body right away and you have your funeral and you move on. And then there's like a like some sort of ceremony where you, you know, pray and you have an imam come in and, and say a few words. So certainly I think that would help give a lot of us closure. So it would be nice. It would really be nice. It might be, yeah, worth considering. I love this idea of passing culture on to my kids. I, you, <laughs> you've probably heard me yelling at Akbar yes. to yeah. either speak in Urdu or I yell at him in Urdu. I'm constantly on his case about speaking our language. I love to get dressed in our clothes and get him dressed. And, you know, really, if there's an Eid celebration, if it's Ramadan, I really try to make it a big deal. And the reason why it's important to me is that culture is what makes all of us so unique. And we, you know, culture allows us to bring in different perspectives. It allows us to see worlds very differently. And I don't want to raise um, a monoculture, you know, child. I want I want my child to not only appreciate the American culture that we're in, but the Pakistani culture that, you know, his parents were born into and know about the country that they come from, the language that we speak and the traditions that we have and the religious aspects of who we are. And I don't expect Akbar to be religious, but I think that I grew up with all of these traditions and, and cultural elements in my life. And it really is, you know, defines me. I, <laughs> my friends often joke with me that when I'm speaking to my mom, um, my accent changes. Yes, I've heard have it firsthand. Heard, have I have heard this firsthand, but you have to say out loud <laughs> what you're talking about. Okay. So I'm like, right now I'm talking to you and it's this very Americanized accent. As soon as I get on the phone with my mom, like, Mamiya, you didn't send me the 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 password to that login thing that you want me to send. <laughs> want me to log into? Like, how do you expect me to do this? <laughs> <laughs> See how 
my accent changed. And it's like this very Pakistani accent. And people always often ask me, like, why do I do it? And I'm like, I actually don't know why. I suspect that I try to, well, growing up, my my dad would say stuff like, or my parents would say like, stop being so American or like, it's that's so Americanized or, and, and what they're trying to say is that you're from Pakistan and, you know, there's something about this situation that is, that you're speaking to me in a very American, Americanized way. I would prefer that you speak to me differently. And the way I interpreted that was I will <laughs> just not have an American accent <laughs> and I would, I would have this Pakistani about accent. Having pride in your culture now that you're an adult and have children of your own. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I find myself actually speaking to them more in this accent because i that is my accent. It's the one that I'm comfortable with. But for whatever reason, I feel comfortable having this Americanized accent. Uh, <laughs> no other reason than just that's what makes me comfortable. But I, I will say what that's also what makes me sad about Omer's parents passing away. Omer's parents were our reason to go back to Pakistan every year. I had imagined a world where we would drop off the kids in Pakistan with Omer's parents for the summer and Omer and I would like take these lavish vacations or just like work from you know, work from Paris for two months while my, you know, children are hanging out in Pakistan being spoiled by their grandparents. And, and just not, not just that, I just, to be able to go there and speak the language, eat the food, wear the clothes, see the traditions. And there's less excitement about going to Pakistan uh, now that they're not here. I mean, I have, you know, my, my sister-in-law is there with her family, but and they're fun, but there's something about grandparents and having that connection that I, I feel like has been stripped away from us. And I'm at a crossroads about whether I want to go back to Pakistan and expose my kids on a yearly basis or not. I love going to Pakistan, but I had a very bad experience this time around. As somebody who's a pro-feminist and just advocates for women's rights and you know will stand up for a woman when she is being mistreated and the misogyny in Pakistan and in our culture. And to me, that's something that's just, that really stood out this time around. And it's less exciting for me to go back, um, back and, you know, just put myself in that situation. I have to deal with that again. Right. It's yeah, not fun. Look out for your own mental health. And there's only so many fights. Exactly. And we have plenty of misogyny and lots of problems here in this country. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and we're recording this a week after the events in Atlanta um, shooting and you grew up in Atlanta. I don't know if that sort of impacted you and you know, maybe it hit closer to home in some ways. I mean, we're both women, women of color. Like I think every woman in America has been impacted by, by what's happening. Um, but as somebody that grew up there. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I, I'm mortified, to say the least, uh, the kind of hate that people have in their hearts uh, for any religious group or, or, or racial group, but especially in this time of Asian hate. And it really baffles my mind. Now, growing up in Georgia, I'm in a sad way, I'm not surprised. Growing up there, there were and I don't know how other neighborhoods are. And, you know, I, I spent 
a lot of time in Atlanta and and then moved to San Francisco and and the two you know worlds are very different. But in Atlanta, there's the white neighborhood, there's the black neighborhood, there's the Asian neighborhood, there is this neighborhood, and you know people look at who lives in what neighborhood and will decide whether to buy a house there. People are like, well, don't go to Buford Highway or don't go to that side of Buford Highway because that side of Buford Highway is a little dangerous. But this side of Buford Highway is a little nicer because that's where like the nicer Asian restaurants are. Or don't go down to South Georgia or South Atlanta. That's where, you know, that's where the gangs are. That's where like the dangerous neighborhoods are. You know, that's where the... And I grew up hearing this a lot and it is normal for people to talk like this there and people have normalized that kind of speech and growing up i didn't realize that that is not normal and that shouldn't be normal and that it's one of those situations where if somebody's just doing it just kind of go along and i saw it growing up i you know i i remember the neighborhoods that we would, you know, live in and people would say like, oh, you know, this kind of person moved in or that kind of person moved in and that determined the quality of the neighborhood. And it makes me realize that people have had this hate in their hearts for a really, really long time. And between our previous president who shall be unnamed and, um, you know, and other types of supporters, I'm not surprised that that hate has come out in this way and it makes me incredibly sad. And my parents were were immigrant families. We moved to Atlanta because that's where my aunt was, but it was also very easy to start a life there. You could start a business very easily and you could really do financially well um, without having to invest a whole lot. And I look back at these women who were attacked in these massage parlors. They were here to live their American dream the same way my dad showed up to the US with $700 in his pocket and four kids and four mouths, you know, five mouths to feed, including his own, and just trying to make it by. And I see these women women doing the exact same for their family and to be targeted that way, the same way my dad was targeted when 9-11 happened, makes me really sad. And, you know, having experienced the hate myself in my own neighborhood, you know, a very staunch Republican who chased me down in my neighborhood and told me to go back to my country, I personally experienced the hate and the racial divide. And it is something that we all have been living with and unable to talk about our story. And it's sad that the way the stories come out is when someone is murdered and, you know, lives are lost. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that there's so many important takeaways and in a way from this tragedy and the lives lost and the blood spilled, it has reopened the narrative for people to really talk about it. And I think something you said that stuck with me is this was happening. People were speaking like this when I was growing up and it was normalized. And I think that's really the key. I think that that has been what's happening in this country for so long. And even I'm sure you 
knew deep down, like, this is wrong. It doesn't feel right. But perhaps you didn't have the courage. And, and when I was in the same situations as you, just enter a different USA town, you know, same thing. I certainly didn't feel the courage or confidence to say something. But I think after this summer and after what's going on now, especially with older, the elders in the Asian community being targeted, like, I mean, this could be my dad, my dad, you know, a brown old man. I don't think people really are going to discern Indian from insert, you know, other culture. But now I do feel like I can say like, that's wrong. You're wrong. And like have the courage to do that. So I guess there's sort of a silver lining in that. We have a long way to go. Lots of work to do though. Absolutely. And I remember there are a couple of times where I tried to speak out about this and I would often be, you know, kind of shoved behind and be like, you know, shut your mouth. You're, you're a girl or like, stop being inappropriate and, you know, behave yourself. That's not, you know, that's not how you talk. And thinking to myself that, oh gosh, I'm not supposed to like say those things and I'm not supposed to stand up for myself. And I don't think my parents ever intentionally ever tried to do that or, you know, other adults in our, in my life ever intentionally tried to do that. It was always this, you know, at least in, in, in the Pakistani community or Asian communities, I would say is like, it's about image and it's about perception and it's about fitting in and, you know, really just assimilating and don't disturb that thing that prevents you from assimilating. Right. Right. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. And I was taught to believe that's true. And it's not true that we were, we were here in their country. I mean, like talking about sort of cultural norms and traditions, I mean, in the Indian culture, light skin is celebrated and desired and desirable. And like, so there's all sorts of generational racism that's being handed down in a very unspoken way. So, but it's interesting to like see people having these conversations with the elders and the Indian community about, you know, when Black Lives Matter started. So I think that we're walking in the right direction, but we have a long road ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just, it's sad that the conversations have started at the backs of a lot of people's lives. And I guess that's when big movements do happen, when people see this level of injustice. And I'm, I am very happy to see it. I also, it just breaks my heart to see a lot of families lose loved ones in the process. Well, I mean, not only are you super mom, super wife, super friend, you are now also, you know, running your own company. You had this idea when you were on parental leave and I remember you telling me about it and you this year decided to sort of take that step. And I would love to hear all about how you are building out your own business. Yeah. Um, so I started thinking about this idea uh, probably back in 2013 when my husband and I actually haven't told a lot of people this and people will hear this for the first time that my husband and I wanted to, um, we were trying for our kids back in 2013 and really were struggling to get pregnant and tried for, tried for a couple of years and finally decided that we needed, we needed fertility uh, treatment. And as I was going through the process of gathering all of my health information to bring to my fertility specialist, I thought to my myself, well, this 
process and collecting all my health data is kind of a pain. Certainly, there's a better way to do that. And I've spent my career in healthcare, so I think about this you know, space quite a bit. And fast forward to um, having my daughter um, and going through the uh, process of getting a embryo transfer uh, for her, again, all of this health data was out there, all of my thyroid information, my hormone levels, and it was just all in different places. And finally, when I had her uh, in May, I continue to realize that this is still a problem and there's something that needs to be done about it. Um, and I had tried versions of this idea uh, through, you know, working with some designers in the past and finally, you know, felt like it was a good time to start, you know, really incubating it again. And I worked on it while I was in maternity leave. And then all the madness that happened in Pakistan made me realize that life's just too precious to be working on a different company's problem. I need to work on the problem that I'm most passionate about. And uh, when we came back from Pakistan, I was just not excited about going back to my job. I It was an amazing opportunity, but not one that I felt that would you know be something I would just... Um, incredibly excited by. So I just decided to leave and take a chance uh, on myself and launch the company, which I formally incorporated in uh, February of 2021 and had some really, really good conversations with great folks and just giving me perspective on, on kind of where's the real opportunity, where things, you know, where we built things already, where, you know, what can I beg, borrow and steal? And, and I finally gotten to a point where I'm able to say, I'm, you know, working on a product that allows consumers like you and me to bring all of our health data together uh, in a single platform to be able to see kind of interesting trends and insights on our health data being able to then consolidate all that information and really take it with you wherever you go. Um, how many times have we heard examples of, of friends who are moving uh, across town and they're moving the moving out of the Bay Area, moving to Austin or moving to Dallas, and and they need to change doctors and take all their health records with them? That process today is very very difficult and convoluted, and so this product will allow for consumers to port all of their health information from all of the different sources and take it to their next provider. And that over time would allow us to create this ecosystem of different places where consumers can get their data from, but also connect their data to other products in the future. So it's a really big pain point for especially mothers uh, who are managing uh, care for their own family as well as themselves, for women who are going through fertility treatment, who manage the, are managing the care of themselves and their partner, or others who are going through difficult times in trying to conceive and helping them manage through um, that whole process. So every time they go to a new doctor, their doctor, they don't have to relive whether they've had multiple miscarriages or lost their child very early in the birth process and really creating a product that drives value for the end consumer. So I'm excited about it. It's something I've been working on for a really long time. It feels really great to launch uh, and start it and really put myself out there and, and share this, um, you know, what I think to be an amazing product uh, with folks in the very near future. Absolutely. I'm so proud of you, friend. Congratulations. You are killing it. And 
I just, I don't even need to wish you luck on this journey because you are doing amazing. And I'm really proud and impressed by you and just happy to be friends with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story, all of your insights on this past year, which was just so crazy. And similar to you, I've been talking about this for a while and I was like, I got to do something I'm passionate about. And so... Congratulations to you. I mean, this is incredible. I listen to your podcast and I'm like, oh my God, look at her. She's such a baller. (laughs) I'm so impressed. Thanks for tuning in to Hindsight's 2020. I hope you leave feeling more connected and able to see your own silver linings. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. Special thanks to my sound engineer, John Kerr of Wayfair Recording. We can't do any of this without your support. Follow us on Instagram at Hindsight's 2020 Podcast and join the conversation at Hindsight's 2020 Podcast on Facebook.